You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 15th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, Ukraine's capital becomes a Russian target once again as drones are shot down over the centre of Kiev. We'll have the latest. Also ahead... We saw freedom in our very way of life and so many other jurisdictions in this country wither on the vine. Florida held the line. Also ahead, Donald Trump is in trouble as his rival for the Republican presidential nomination surges ahead in the polls. We'll ask whether all eyes should now be on Ron DeSantis. Plus, Istanbul's opposition mayor faces jail following a trial his supporters claim has been engineered to remove him from politics. We'll have the late newspapers and we'll get the latest urbanism news too. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look what else is happening in today's news. President Joe Biden has announced an agreement aimed at bolstering trade ties between the US and Africa at a summit with African leaders in Washington. Fiji's opposition leader has alleged irregularities in voting data. It's in an election being closely watched by both China and the US. And Peru's defence minister has announced a nationwide state of emergency. It follows a week of demonstrations. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, Ukraine's capital returned to the heart of the Russian invasion yesterday as up to 13 Iranian-manufactured drones were shot down over the centre of Kyiv. These drones have been used by Russia alongside rockets, missiles and shells as Moscow targets Ukraine's power and water infrastructure. Meanwhile, the US is reportedly planning to send Patriot air defence missiles to Ukraine. Well, to get more on the attacks yesterday and the other latest developments in Ukraine, let's hear now from Alia Chandra. She's the editor-in-chief of Euromaidan and a regular voice up here on Monocle 24. She joins us on the line from Kiev. A very good morning to you, Alia. Good morning. Um, with lots to talk about this morning, from energy deals to this uh, Patriot defence missile um, programme. But first, tell us what happened to, to Kiev yesterday morning. Uh, well, Russia launched 13 Shahad drones um, on Kiev, and apparently all of them were shot down by Ukraine's air defences, which just means that we're getting much better at shooting down these, um, these loitering munitions. And... Uh, a couple of buildings were damaged, uh, uh, but reportedly nobody was hurt, uh, which is very good. Um, so this particular attack, uh, it, it did not reach its aim, from what we can tell. Um, so no energy infrastructure was destroyed, no buildings were destroyed, nobody was killed. Uh, but at the same time, these drone attacks a couple of days ago, they did... Um, uh, do great damage to Odessa, which is a city in southern Ukraine, um, due to a drone attack uh, on its much-suffering energy infrastructure. 
and that happened in the night. Uh, the power power is now out, um, and the whole region. Uh, Odessa is a very difficult situation right now. The whole Odessa Oblast. It is um, most people are without power. Only critical infrastructure has power, and it is it is quite difficult um, there. Oh, I mean, what, what can people do to try to supply the the power back to Odessa? Because this is something that takes days to restore if not months um, and weeks? It's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say because uh, officials are saying that the situation is quite complicated because a lot of things were damaged there. And But just generally speaking, you know, finding uh, the equipment to replace everything that Russia destroys is quite a challenge for Ukraine as um, as countries have found when, when trying to help Ukraine. Um, because uh, Ukraine's power system overall, it, it was, um, it's much more powerful. It's, uh, it's, mm, it, it, it's built for a higher voltage than than um, the power lines in Europe because uh, in the Cold War, the plan for Ukraine was to uh, supply, help the Soviet Union um, supply the Warsaw Pact countries and basically get them dependent on energy from the Soviet Union. So basically, uh, this equipment for power stations, it's very hard to replace because simply the power grid in the EU is, is uh, built for a lower capacity. Um, so people are just trying to survive and it's a challenge because we, one of our team members in Odessa is just... Um, <laughs> She's trying to keep working, but for a journalist, it's extremely difficult when there is no power and no internet. And it is quite difficult, especially for vulnerable populations that, for instance, live on the high uh, floors of an apartment building and how they cannot use the elevator. And um, even just one small thing like that, if you live on the 14th floor of a high rise, how do you get down? We now have uh, reports yeah. coming, moving on to the to the news that's breaking out of the United States overnight, which is it's reportedly planning to send Patriot air defense missiles to Ukraine. You, we started this conversation by you saying the fact that they could shoot down 13 Iranian drones over Kiev is an indication that Ukraine is getting better at this. How much do you think that the, the Patriot air defense missile system will, will help change your fight against Russia? Well, that's a complicated question because, well, for instance, with the drones, um, right now our uh, air air defense chiefs, they have told that uh, they tried to launch them in the night. And in the night is um, the time when when um, Ukraine should use these large air defense complexes against the drones because um, during the day, which is when the attack on Kiev happened, we can shoot them down with, um, with regular uh, small arms. Um, but in the night, this is not possible, and large air defense complexes have to be used. Um, and uh, if they launch a lot of these drones, and especially in the night, it's very difficult to shoot them down, and most will get through. And no matter, even if, if we get these Patriot defense complexes, it will still not be enough to protect against all the drones. Um, but at the, at the uh, on the other hand... Um, on the other hand, uh, Ukraine needs as many air defense complexes as it as it can get because right now it's we have our territory of our country is very large and to cover all the main cities, all the main energy substations, um, it's quite a big daunting task. Um, and 
so we need as many complexes as we can get. On the other hand, the Patriot complexes, they're, um, they were developed for other situations that our, that our country finds um, itself in. It was um, basically uh, the purpose of their development was to protect air bases from attacks by ballistic missiles. They're not exactly um, exactly projected to uh, defend the airspace of a country against cruise missiles. Um, they they have another another purpose, and the thing is that they're quite an expensive complex at that. Um, so, I, I mean, the the fact that we will be getting more complexes, of course, this is better for Ukraine because we don't have enough of them. But at the same time, they're high price and. Um, purpose and um, purpose that that is to protect air bases from ballistic missiles. Um, it's it's. Uh, I don't think that it fully solves Ukraine's problems with air defense. Furthermore, the Kremlin will see this as an escalation. Well, the Kremlin says that regularly. It's part of their tactic of scaring the West from helping Ukraine. But as we've seen, no. <laughs> Ukraine's attacks that on on occupied territory uh, and Ukraine's regainment of Kherson Oblast, which Putin uh, at that at the time it was discussed this this could be a major step to escalation and this could trigger um, Russia's nuclear doctrine. There were discussions about that, but when Ukraine actually uh, uh, advanced and and regained re- regained all of this territory, this was not seen as an escalation. Russia simply retreated, and that was that. So it should be seen as just another scare tactic that Russia like regularly uses, and that unfortunately does succeed in, in 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 scaring the West out of supplying some heavy equipment such as jets, which Ukraine needs needs very very drastically right now, and even more than the Patriots um, defense system. Uh, I've seen calculations that for the amount of money that the Patriots um, would cost, we could buy more jets, and the jets would just change the situation greatly in Ukraine's favor. Um, because, well, ultimately, I, I mean, uh, Russia's ability to launch these cruise missiles it depends on uh, the their jets, their strategic bombers taking um, off from Russian air bases. And uh, just a recent uh, mysterious attack on Russian air bases um, that uh, destroyed some of the bombers or damaged some of the bombers that, that um, were sending these cruise missiles into Ukraine. It has had a great impact. We haven't seen a large attack in over a week. Um, so, I mean, this is ultimately what Ukraine needs. It needs the capacity to attack Russian air bases and not just try to intercept all of these missiles in Ukrainian airspace. Finally, tell us a little bit more about the the, the fact that you know we have the United States sending uh, the Patriot missile system, but we also have the the European Union trying to support Ukraine in other ways, not through sending more armaments, but through trying to find a different way of getting its energy rather than Russia. What's the latest on that? Uh, well, um, lots of countries are t- tapping in and trying to um, trying to help Ukraine, but as I've managed, it's sometimes difficult to find the equipment. Um, uh, equipment necessary because of the different parameters of our energy grids. Um, well, uh, there the energy community. This is um, one of the. It's a it's a community of energy operators in Europe. Um, it's banding together to provide the supply the the supplies and basically. Um, there is like an, a hub that is active in Ukraine that is directing all the aid that Ukraine is getting to the places where it is needed. 
but at the same time uh, most of ukraine right now is is um it has it faces blackouts for most of the day in kiev for instance uh, we have a schedule where uh, power is turned on for six hours of the day power is guaranteed to be in apartments for six hours of the day and the rest of the time um it is uh, it can be gone so and you and you have to figure out how to live in these circumstances where you have power only for six hours of the day Alexandra, um, so, Ali, um, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us on monocle 24 join monocle 24 every day and let the briefing guide and inspire you through uncertain times always keeping you ahead of the curve. Hear razor-sharp insights and opinion from a lineup of brilliant minds every day. It's devolving to a point where we're at odds with each other instead of letting our political leaders do the dirty work, so to speak. Catch up with Monocle's bureau and correspondents around the world. Heavyweight coverage, no white noise, and always delivered with a smile. I think the grey areas lead to a lot of sort of awkward conversations, and there's nothing the English dislike more than awkward conversations. Every weekday at 1300 CET, midday in London and 7am in New York City. Keep your appointment with The Briefing, weekdays on Monocle 24. in Beijing, 7.13 here in London. You're back with The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Now, a group of Chinese diplomats has left the UK weeks after a protester was dragged into the consulate grounds and assaulted. The group had been asked to talk to police about the incident, which happened in Manchester. Instead, they left. Well, joining me is Patricia Thornton, the Associate Professor in the Politics of China at the University of Oxford. Good morning, Patricia. Good morning. So before we find out what's happened to these diplomats, just remind us of the of the event in Manchester. So the uh, the original event in Manchester uh, took place on the 16th of October, which just happened to be the opening day of the um, the Chinese People's 20th Party Congress at which Xi Jinping was re-elected. Um, and because at the previous party Congress, he had lifted term limits for his own position. So he was potentially reelected for life. And a group of about 30 or 40 uh, protesters, most of them from Hong Kong, gathered outside the gates of the Manchester consulate in order to protest. One of the protest signs included a portrait of Xi Jinping uh, that was uh, playing off of the idea of the emperor has no clothes. And there were two banners alongside it, one calling for the wrath of heaven to come down on the Chinese Communist Party. And another one contained a a relatively mild Cantonese slur uh, uh, congratulating uh, Xi Jinping for his reelection. And uh, what seems to have happened is that uh, the um, consul general called over the police, the Manchester police, and asked the protesters to remove the banners the Manchester police officer said he saw no problem with with those materials. They were outside of the uh, consulate gates. And so uh, a few minutes later, the consul general himself and with several other members uh, of diplomats uh, of the consular staff, including two wearing helmets and riot uh, padded vests for protection came out and removed the banners, tore them down, and dragged them back inside, uh, inside the grounds of the consulate. 
and there was a tussle then at the at the open gates and uh one of the protesters a man named bob chan was pulled inside and beaten quite badly uh the manchester police paused at the gates because of course i think they were concerned about diplomatic immunity and once you step into the consulate, uh, arguably you are on Chinese soil, but there are uh, certain conditions under which the police are able uh, to intervene, and this was one of them. And so uh, a Manchester police officer did uh, cross in and managed to get the protester back, but he was badly bruised and had to be taken to the hospital. Now, what was supposed to have happened at that point, if if um, if the British government and the police had had their way, was that those involved in what happened in Manchester would be questioned, but that didn't happen. They left. I mean, des- mm. describe the circumstances of, of their departure. Were they called back to China or was this just a decision that they thought, we don't want to be involved anymore in this? Well, yes, uh, the Manchester police carried out an extensive investigation. Uh, There were press on the scene and there were CCTV cameras. And so the event was captured by various different angles. The consul general himself gave an interview in which he first denied uh, engaging in any activity or any attack, but then later admitted he had pulled out the man's hair and he said he was justified in doing so because uh, it, that the protester had insulted his leader and his country and that it was, in fact, his duty to do so. So the consul general actually admitted his guilt, in a sense, on um, public television in here in the UK. Uh, the Manchester police then requested that the six members of the consulate staff who were involved in the incident uh, come in to the police station for questioning and that they surrender their diplomatic immunity in order to do so. Uh, China decided that uh, they would be returned instead to Beijing. And uh, uh, the Chinese foreign ministry has said that the reason that they were returned was because it was a normal rotation of staff. Although, of course, it, it, it happened on the deadline set by the Manchester police for them to be questioned. The the fact that at the time mentioned it was mentioned that the 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 Chinese diplomats felt emboldened and and that they could engage in the behaviour that many saw them do, um, and the fact that this was often called you know the wolf diplomacy if if you, you you go out there and you you impose your identity very much on the country that you're 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 spending time in, the fact that they have now gone what does that say about the way that the Chinese and the and the UK are now dealing with each other not not good one would suggest. Yeah, I I mean, we're obviously entering a new uh, and more fractious period in uh, Sino-UK relations. Xi Jinping has ushered in a a sort of new generation of Chinese diplomats that are practicing, as you say, wolf warrior diplomacy. They're much more assertive, much more confrontational. However, I would say that this is not the first time that this has happened. Some of your listeners who may be over the age of 60 may recall that a similar incident occurred in 1967 at the Chinese um, embassy in London when uh, Chinese diplomats came out uh, armed with iron bars chanting anti-British slogans behind a portrait of Mao Zedong and uh, began trying to hit and beat uh, police officers in London that were attempting to protect the embassy. So it's not the first time it's happened, but it does uh, signal a very uh, negative shift and uh, we'll have to see what happens, but uh, it is it it looks like we're poised for a fractious period in Sino-UK uh, relations. There were also accusations that the United Kingdom side dragged its heels in trying to bring all this to account. 
Mm. Well, uh, it, it does appear uh, there are some reports, of course, that uh, members of parliament are split in their decision about whether to crack down and how or how difficult or how hard they want to go in terms of imposing this line with uh, with Chinese officials, because there's a lot of interest, of course, in trying to maintain trade relations. Uh, however, I, the Manchester police were pretty clear that they were they wanted to carry out an investigation and they were proceeding according to law, uh, UK law, and uh, they gave the Chinese embassy a, do, uh, a deadline. And then uh, only at that point uh, did they indicate that diplomatic consequences would follow. And the diplomatic consequence would have been that these officials would have been announced as persons non grata which would have meant that their uh, ability to serve uh, in the uh, Chinese consulate would have been revoked. Patricia Thornton, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Donald Trump's comeback campaign in trouble already. A survey among Republican voters in Mr. Trump's home state of Florida suggests he's not the person they want to lead them into 2024's race for the White House. They would prefer instead Ron DeSantis, the state's governor. Well, Chris Lord is Monocle's US editor, but I'm delighted to say he's travelled all the way just for this interview to the United Kingdom. Hello, Chris. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> I wish that were the case, but thank you for coming in anyway. It's lovely to see oh, you. It's good to see you. Right, well, we'll try and work out. We'll hear a little bit more about Ron DeSantis in a minute, but just mm. tell us about this survey. Yeah, as you say, look, this is one of a number of surveys that came out in the last couple of days that conducted by various papers and uh, political uh, institutions and so on, looking at essentially the road to 2024, the general election, the presidential election there in the US, where at the moment of the many, many candidates that potentially are out there for the Republican nominee, obviously Donald Trump has already thrown his hat in the ring. And of all those various surveys that came out, CNN did one, the Wall Street Journal did one as well. What you consistently find is that the base of Donald Trump, those Republican-leaning voters, essentially are losing interest in him. And yes, they are increasingly looking to the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, as the likely Republican nomination. Now, the reasons behind that are uh, well discussed. You know, we talk about what happened in the midterms where there wasn't a, as expected, red wave. And in fact, a lot of the candidates that were backed by Trump, his you know, his dogs in the fight, if you were, to, to sort of create that kind of Trumpism idea, stop the steal, all these touch points that have become his in the, in the years since he left office. All Many, many, many of those candidates fared so poorly in the midterms. And I think talking to Americans and talking to Republican voters and indeed people involved in the political machinery of the Republican Party, what a lot of them will quietly say is that, you know, we still like Trump, we still like him a lot, but we also like winning elections. And I think that's 
becoming the political reality for him now. Ron DeSantis is a very powerful figure. He got a 20% lead in his race to as the incumbent governor in Florida during the midterms. That's what conservatives want to see in America. Now. Indeed. I mean, Florida is always seen as a marginal, isn't it? That that tiny swing state. We've seen history, uh, you know, seeing Florida as a kind of location for all the, the, the last moment uh, wrangling. But it, it's, you know, you talk of the red wave there. Arguably, the red wave happened in Florida because of Ron DeSantis. Florida used to be a swing state. I mean, it used to be a place where anything goes and, and, and became a bellwether for the way the, way the country was going to go ultimately in, 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 in Washington. Ron DeSantis has changed all that, really. I mean, he's energised Republican voters so much. And in fact, you, you have to look at what he's done. I mean, just a bit of background on who Ron DeSantis is. The man is in his mid-40s. Uh, he's, a, he's a political animal, unlike Donald Trump. He's not a chancer who's come out of nowhere. He is, you know, somebody who's actually been involved in politics for a very long time. And his, you know, the way it's sometimes framed with DeSantis is Trumpism without Trump. And I don't know if that's quite true, because I think what he's keen to do is he's keen to take the... Some of the belligerents, he's he's also keen to 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 make his sort of political his political uh, platform, if you will. You know, he said, he talks about Florida being where woke goes to die, and he, you know, has put himself against vaccines in many cases, or at least it, it, it has sort of flirted with some of the sceptics of vaccines who are out there. Uh, he's put a lot of um, the blame for some of the economic headwinds that we're now seeing at the door of lockdowns and so on. Throughout the the, the COVID period, Florida infamously remained completely open through. Now, however however one views lockdowns, ultimately, that worked very well for Florida's economy. And, you know, we look at at Miami just as an example right now. Thousands and thousands of New Yorkers moved down there during the pandemic. People who had probably lived in a Democrat state for their entire lives decided to sell up, move down to Florida, move down to Miami, in search of jobs, opportunities, and so on. That kind of statement to Republican base that says, hey, can you convince people who would never, who would, you know, never normally vote Republican to hold their nose and say, well, economically, it makes sense. As a picture of stability, this guy is more appealing. He is slicker than Trump. He doesn't have the drama associated with him. And I think that's what's happening now with a lot of Republicans. They're thinking, when it comes to 2024, Biden's already shown in some respects that he can create the the coherence in his party to do well out of the midterms or better than expected, we need a clearer voice who can talk policy and talk successes. So does this now cut Donald Trump off early on? It it is early on. That's the key thing. I mean, you have to remember previous races where people throw, you know, when people are fated to be the the great hope uh, for each party way ahead of an election, it can sometimes be it can sometimes be politically toxic for that to happen and it doesn't always work out that way it is early on for donald trump there is still two years to go to that election where he can do a lot of fire and fury there is a good you know there's a pretty good chance he's going to be a front runner for that nomination ron DeSantis, we have to remember hasn't actually officially put his hat in the ring yet but he's done that great thing which a lot of political uh, ambitious people do is they put out a memoir when they're about to start about to start running for the top office. And he's got his coming out in the new year. And I think that will be, however, you know, a lot of these memoirs generally are quite dull to read, but they are also setting out the, the stall for what politically they're going to be. And I think we're going to learn quite a lot from that about what kind of president he imagines himself to be. But there is a long way to go. And if we, we you know, cast our, ti- our minds back to 2016, you know, Trump does so well on the campaign trail. He does so well in debates where he can say outlandish things. 
I don't know how Ron DeSantis will fare when you get into that debating world, into that campaign trail. Well, I mean, looking at Ron DeSantis and where he now goes next, and this survey, which A, dis- displayed an apparent weakness in Trump's campaign, mm. but it's also highlighting um, an apparent weakness with Joe Biden as well. You mentioned all those Americans who went to Florida during the um during the the COVID pandemic, not just for a little bit of sunshine. Um, and this survey suggests that Ron DeSantis leads Joe Biden by 47 to 43%. So were the United States to go to the polls right now, heaven forbid, because we're not ready for it yet, but he might actually get the White House. Again, we have to we have to deal with these polls very early with a bit of kid gloves. I do think there is this, though, and I, I really believe the next two years, the narrative is going to be, can... Joe Biden effectively communicate what the Democrats have done in, with with their time in office. Because I think, you know, the, the story of the last two years has been that Joe Biden is really his own worst messenger. And he's so poor at getting across the messages of actual successes of politics that the Democrats have had. Two huge bills have made made their way through the House. Yes, a little bit changed from their original con- conception. But they will, they, you know, as Pete Buttigieg says, the, the Transport Secretary, what the infrastructure bill is the same in scale, in scope, to FDR's New Deal. And yet so few Americans could put their finger on why that's going to improve their lives. So that poor messaging now, when you get up against a campaigner like Ron DeSantis, a politician like him, who is slick, who is who is, has the appearance of credibility, who also is very is run something. He's run a, a state as governor. You put against that, if you have Trump's chaos and instability, you can, by contrast, present yourself as that figure of calm stewardship. And I think, I think Biden, that was part of the bump that we saw in, in the midterms, was that it was just people simply thought, we just have had, and we're fatigued with the chaos stuff. But DeSantis is a different player, and I think he's much more believable. He's much more in control of himself, even if he's not got the same sort of high adrenaline uh, campaigning style of Donald Trump. So this now puts the focus on the Democrats as much as it does on the Republicans, because if you have, as this survey is suggesting, six out of ten Americans say they don't want either Trump or Biden mm. on the ticket mm. for, for 2024. We have Ron DeSantis, who looks like he could be leading the charge for the Republicans. All eyes are on Joe Biden and a potential successor. Who might that be? Well, very, this is this is the great question. And I think right now as well, we have to only think, I think, back to those immediate aftermath of the midterms when there was those pictures emerged of Joe Biden with his baseball cap on looking very relaxed because the red wave hadn't happened as it had been heavily trailed. He's going to go for that nomination. And he really does believe now he is a vote winner. He's done it twice, in his opinion. And regardless, you know, those midterms, we have to remember as well, they are the one person, in essence, who wasn't on the ballot was was Joe Biden, even though if it might have been framed as a referendum on his presidency. But actually, if that is was a referendum, then you could argue, yes, he actually played much better than he was. I think there are lots of Democrats in the wings urging, we need to rethink this, Joe Biden is not getting any younger. There are... He's going to come up against a much younger individual if he does come up against Ron DeSantis, who is, despite not being the campaigner of Donald Trump, a high-energy individual. But the natural successes are just not clear. And I think that's going to be a big problem. But as I say, the next two years are about refining the messaging and and, uh, Joe Biden being able to tell Americans why his party is the party of economic stability and stewardship. Chris Lord, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. The time here in London is 7.31 a.m., Let's have a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. 
President Joe Biden has announced an agreement aimed at bolstering trade ties between the US and Africa. At a three-day summit in Washington, Mr Biden told African leaders from 49 countries that the US is all in on Africa's future. Fiji's opposition leader has alleged irregularities in voting data while calling for calm. The election is being closely watched by China and the US. The complaint stems from what the election supervisor said was a glitch in an app used to display voting results. And Peru's defence minister has announced a nationwide state of emergency. It follows a week of demonstrations. The protests were sparked by the ousting of the former president Pedro Castillo in an impeachment vote last week. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. A look at the newspapers and the latest environmental news in a moment. But first, the mayor of Istanbul is one of Turkey's rising political stars. But Ekrem Imalolu was sentenced to jail yesterday for insulting public officials after he won the city's municipal election three years ago. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined by Hannah Lucinda-Smith, Monocle's Istanbul correspondent. A very good morning to you, Hannah. Good morning. Uh, so just explain to us, tell us about this trial. So this case dates back three and a half years to when Ekrem Imamoglu first won the mayorship of Istanbul back in the summer of 2019. Now, that was a contested election. Imamoglu won that seat uh, from uh, President Erdogan's candidate, uh, President Erdogan's party had controlled Istanbul since 1995. Um, so obviously a huge knock for Erdogan. Istanbul is also his home city. Um, and what happened was that the higher electoral boards in Turkey actually originally overturned that election, um, forced it back to the polls. Imamoglu won again. But in the meantime, he'd given a speech uh, saying that uh, the the members of that higher electoral board who'd taken that decision uh, were fools that they'd taken the wrong decision and that's resulted in this case he was accused of insulting public officials it's a charge that can carry up to four years in prison um, he was convicted yesterday handed to an two years and seven months in prison. But the really important part of this conviction is the political ban that goes alongside it. It means that if the conviction stands, if it's not overturned in the appeal courts, that Ekrem Imamoglu is going to be banned from running for political office in Turkey. So now, that is, that's really significant because he is seen as one of the kind of rising stars within the opposition, a possible contender against President Erdogan, perhaps in the elections that are coming up next year, but if not next year, then certainly in the future. And of course, if this political ban holds, it takes him out of the game. Indeed. And and we have the opposition at the moment still trying to work out who's going to take on Erdogan next year. And if Imamolu is out of the game, then we we have a big problem for the opposition. Yeah, absolutely. And this has been one of the biggest problems for the opposition already. They've not named their candidate for next year's elections, partly for the reason that they know that as soon as they do name that candidate, pressure is likely to come on them, legal pressure, political pressure. Um, And that's one of the reasons why they were holding off. Now, I think we have to say, you know, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that Imam Olu was going to stand. There were certain problems connected with having him as the candidate. He would have had had to have been pulled out of Istanbul halfway through his tenure. He's also very, very inexperienced. He's basically a kind of unknown quantity before 2019. But in the past three years, he really has risen to become, you know, perhaps the biggest challenger to Erdogan. He's incredibly charismatic. When I've seen him out and about around Istanbul, the way that the crowds react to Imam Olu is so similar to the way that people used to react to Erdogan back when he was in fact, also mayor of Istanbul back at the start of his own political career. So I think, you know, from Erdogan's perspective, from the government's perspective, Imam Olu is a figure who, you know, presented a real 
and serious political challenge. And and clearly with this court case, that's one challenger that's going to be kind of, you know, taken out of the consideration. How much does does the departure of Imamalu um, edify or or bolster Erdogan, given the fact that he has dominated Turkish politics for well over a decade, but the economy and the the country itself is is in dire straits? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, interestingly enough, in one of the kind of not not uh, the most pro-government paper, but certainly one of the ones that, you know, leans towards a pro-government line this morning, there's an opinion piece by one of the writers saying, oh, well, actually, you know, this decision is nothing to do with Erdogan. And he might actually be, you know, slightly discomforted by it. I think everybody knows that that's absolutely not true. The justice system in Turkey at this point is, you know, really, really uh, absolutely politicised. There's more than a third of judges and prosecutors have been sacked and replaced since the coup attempt in 2016. Um, and we've seen a string of these kind of decisions, including, uh, you know, um, cases that have gone to appeal, been overturned, and then new cases brought against the people uh, standing in the dock. So really, it's a politicised system at this point. But I think also, you know, we shouldn't just see it as, you know, an opposition candidate being taken out of the race and that just being good for Erdogan. I think what's really interesting over the past few years is the way that different opposition parties have come together. And in fact, um, six of those opposition parties have already formed a coalition to go into the next elections, even though they haven't announced their candidate yet. And what was really striking last night when this verdict was given was that those uh, other opposition parties instantly rallied around Ekrem Mamalu. We had other opposition figures giving very, very powerful speeches, saying that they're going to fight this decision, stand behind Imamalu. And in fact, later today in Istanbul, there is going to be a, a, a mass meeting held between these different opposition parties. So I think, you know, although clearly having Imam Molo out of the race is advantageous for President Erdogan. I think also the kind of reaction that it's going to spark might actually just you know, bring the opposition, opposition together a bit more, give them a bit more of a sense of purpose going into the elections next year. Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Right, it's time to have a look at the newspapers on today's Globalist. I'm delighted to say Vincent McAvinney, regular Monocle 24 voice, is back round the table. Hello. Good morning. You brought the beanie hat in. It is pretty chilly out it's there. It's beanie hat weather. Yeah. Okay, that's our sartorial choices sorted. What's <laughs> happening in the news, Vinny? Uh, well, the first story uh, today that I'm looking at is from the Los Angeles Times, and it's a report into Paul Pelosi, the uh, departing speaker, Nancy Pelosi's husband. His alleged attacker has uh, been in court, and more details of the police investigation have come out, including that he had a list of targets which uh, would have seen him go after the likes of Tom Hanks, Hunter Biden and Gavin Newsom, the governor of California as well. And what's been really interesting uh, about the discourse around him 
the last few weeks since this pretty dreadful incident when he broke into the home and, and attacked this man with a hammer looking for his wife is that the machine around the kind of right-wing media in the US has really tried to muddy the waters on this in the same way as they've tried to do after the capital attack on the sick. They tried, but very early on in the sequence, to just mess things up, to send off their own conspiracy loons. They were aided by Elon Musk, who made unfounded allegations um, about uh, the speaker's husband and what could have happened, linking to a conspiracy website. And that has all kind of rumbled on and really become become the kind of mainstream discourse in the Republican Party, even elected officials parroting this nonsense about him potentially being a, a lover or something like that, when it's very clear from the police investigation and the video that's come out that this was someone politically motivated. He wanted to kidnap Nancy Pelosi to break her kneecaps uh, to try and expose this sort of QAnon-type cult that he thinks is going on. And it is very worrying that this is what public life in America is like now. So the fact that we now have added to the, the, the alleged hit list Tom Hanks, Gavin Newsom, some Hunter Biden, etc. Does that change the narrative at all, or are things so embedded now that that's not going to make any difference? Well, there's been calls for weeks from uh, people on the right in America, the kind of alt-right, but also then going all the way up to sort of the Fox News presenters to release the police body cam footage, otherwise they wouldn't believe it. Now, the police in and did show the court the body camera footage, which tracks with the events as reported in reptile news organisations, and now they're just going into overdrive saying, oh, they've needed to wait this long to do a severe edit and it's not real uh, we want the home security camera footage as well now so it does show just how tricky political discourse is in the US when one side will simply just muddy the waters intentionally ignite the fires of conspiracy when a really serious attack has happened okay let's uh, move on to the next story when I think what's what's caught your eye next well in the Wall Street Journal it's an interesting story about a legal battle now between the PGA tour and the live golf tour which is the sort of up start that's Saudi Arabia backed that's funding uh, the golfers uh, that have decided to join that. It's been highly controversial but this is a court battle uh, in which they've actually the Live Tour has accused the PGA Tour of uh, getting the 9-11, using a PR company to sort of pay the 9-11 victims groups uh, to come out and attack them. Now the, wait, wait a second, you're just going to have to un- explain this a little bit. We're yeah. talking about two golf tournaments. Talking about two golf tours. Bringing yeah. in the families of 9-11. Yes, because... Right, you're what... going to have to explain that. <laughs> Sorry, I'll unpack it a bit more. What essentially happened is this, uh, the P, you know, golf, uh, the PGA Tour is the main tour that uh, the professional players are on in America. A rival one started, which was backed by Saudi Arabia. It was playing the salaries of players who decided to join it as a rival. Huge salaries. Uh, but it was attacked through the summer by the 9-11 family saying that this was Saudi Arabia trying to sports wash, that this was, uh, you know, them trying to clean up, as we've seen, their their reputation. Uh, And now in a court battle between the PGA Tour and the Live Tour, the Live Tour is claiming that the PGA Tour was actually using a PR firm, that they were paying for these families to protest, that it was an organised thing. But the families uh, that run this group have hit back strongly, saying they don't need anyone uh, to pay them to protest. This is not what happened that they've spent thousands of hours over the past two decades trying to hold Saudi Arabia to account for its role in those attacks. Right. Astonishing story. Um, Elon Musk's private jet is causing lots of problems. Well, it's not if you quite like... If you quite well, environmental like problems. Well, yes. But if you quite like following jets on the internet, which, let's face it, a lot of us do, um, that's fine. But if you decide to use that publicly available information and put it all over Twitter... 
which Elon Musk now owns, then that's a different matter. What's really interesting about this story, um, so at Elon Jet, it was set up by a, a university student, Jack Sweeney, and it used publicly available data. He wrote an algorithm and it just tracked where the transponder of the plane was moving to. Uh, and there's another one, uh, which is like Celebrity Jets, which does the same for Celebrity Jets. Now, Elon Musk has whined about this account, saying it jeopardizes his security. But one of the guarantees that he gave when he took over Twitter about how much he loved free speech and how he's going to protect it was that he kept saying, and I'm even going to let that account that tracks my private jet stay up. Well, he's backtracked on that as he's backtracked on pretty much everything that he's done since he acquired Twitter. It looks like last night the account was deactivated and the account of the man, Jack Sweeney, that had set it up has also seemed to have disappeared, at least for a period. Um, And that's, you know, it's alarming that Elon Musk doesn't seem to be really sticking to anything that he said about it. He's being pretty unpredictable. He's releasing these so-called Twitter files to journalists that he think are uh, people that should review this stuff but aren't sort of non-partisan journalists. Are we that surprised by Mr Musk's gestures? I mean, given the fact that when Twitter t- fell into his hands and the, sort of like all bets were off, weren't they? Pretty much so, yeah. I think it is, but it's just such a rapid change. You know, this is someone who has a lot of companies. He has Tesla as well. He has SpaceX. But it seems like all his bandwidth, really, at the moment is just going into Twitter. And you wonder whether or not it is wise to spend that much time on Twitter. No, yes, of course. Um, Finally, really, really, really good news. If you have to go regularly through those passport and security controls at airports when they get you to take your shoes off and most importantly you get have to decant all your decent whatever into 100 milliliters or less bottles which is an absolute bind is it true Vinny, that we're going to have the 100 milliliter ban lifted it is brilliant. but not until june 2024 not so brilliant. it'll be uh, rules on liquids and laptops to be eased in uk airports this is because there's a new generation of scanners which will give better images of what's inside all of our bags it will hopefully speed up security you'll be allowed to take up to two liters uh, which seems That's a lot quite of a shampoo. lot a lot of extraordinary <laughs> amount that you would need um but it is a welcome of course as you say you know keeping your electronics in as well is really helpful because that's a bit of a slog. Uh, But this is a really big change. And I think it will also help travellers a lot because most people these days, especially with how airports are at the moment, you're reluctant to put a whole bag on. Everyone's trying to, you know, I think the I've even bought one, the rise of the kind of carry-on cases that just fit in the the holder that uh, you can take on. But obviously you can't get put liquids in them, so you have to buy stuff when you get there. I think this will help air passengers a lot and it's you know it's a long time 2006 since that plot to use liquids to blow up planes going over the atlantic it's been a long time that we've all had to do this so it'll be an end to those little tiny minis of everything that you can uh, get for traveling what a shame vincent mcavinney thank you for bringing the best news i've heard for a very long time (laughs) you're listening to the globalist Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. Let's get the latest climate news with Sheena Rossiter, Monocle's contributing editor in Edmonton. A very good evening to you, Sheena. It's nearly bedtime where you are, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's right. Good to have you with us. Um, before we let you go go off, um, bring us the biggest news. I, I think a huge headline this week was the major development in nuclear fusion, which is sort of like the opposite of fission, isn't it? It's when you throw two particles of hydrogen together and see what happens as opposed to splitting them. Because many people are saying that because of that, you, you don't cause the dreadful um, consequences of fallout that you get with fission. Yeah, exactly. Like fusion ignition, it doesn't really mean a lot to most people, but exactly like you were saying, it basically presses two hydrogen atoms together, but it does it at such an extreme force that it combines helium and then that releases enormous amounts of energy and heat and doesn't create any kind of radioactive waste. So this is much more of a green and climate friendly new way of creating energy. And what happened basically last week, but we're only learning about it this week, is at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, according to the energy department there, this was the first time that they had net energy gain from this fusion ignition from doing this um, pressure of putting two hydrogen atoms together at extreme force. And that means that more energy was produced for the first time than actually losing energy through fusion ignition. Not very much, though. Just a tiny bit. It was fractions of a second, and it was just... <laughs> it, it took so much money and time to get here, and I'm talking billions of dollars over decades of work and research to literally produce fractions of a second through fusion ignition. What does that mean, though, in terms of um, creating a future of green energy? I mean, I wonder whether you and I will live to see us sort of like plugging our, our kettles into thanks to a bit of fusion. Well, not anytime soon. We'll probably be retirement age by the time that actually happens. But it's still being called like a very momentous occasion for energy. And because it has to happen at such high temperatures and under such extreme pressure that it's really difficult to control, hence why it's cost billions of dollars and it's taken decades to get where we are. And I mean, a lot of researchers and scientists have called this already, quote, one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. And they've said that this is going to go down in the history books. The U.S. Energy Secretary, for example, she has said that this is a breakthrough that's expected to pave the way for clean power and advances in national defense. It is a huge leap forward, but producing carbon-free energy from things like fusion ignition, it's not going to be heating our homes or fueling businesses anytime soon. That's still decades away, but this is a significant leap. And Emma, if I had to put money on this, this is going to be Nobel Prize winning for sure. Fantastic. Okay, anything else happening in climate change? Loads. So big policy announcements were made by uh, Europe's biggest bank, HSBC. They basically announced that they're no longer providing funding to new oil and gas fields. Now, of course, you have to focus on the word new there. So this is a big announcement and it's being applauded by climate activists as a big update in the bank's climate strategy. But they're still going to be advising on current uh, oil and gas fields where they finance those already, and also they're going to continue to finance those for a little bit longer. But the bank has made this announcement saying that it is currently in line with the future of declining global oil and gas demand. So it's good from like a business perspective. 
but also it's something that they really kind of just need to get ahead of in order to not be financing uh, big companies like this. And the Rainforest Action Network just shows how important and how significant banks are for fueling uh, and funding fossil fuels, really. It was estimated that four of the largest U.S. banks together account for a quarter of fossil fuel financing that's been identified in the past six years. So this is pretty significant because it's not just uh, policy, but it's more you can't really get these big projects off the ground if you're not getting funded by the people that are funding them, which are the banks. And if you are a financial institution such as HSBC, you need to watch yourself now, don't you, in terms of not just where you are making your investments, because ESG is such a huge component moment of, of investing future. But also, if we look back at what happened at COP27 um, last month or a little over a month ago, financial institutions were put in the spotlight, weren't they? Absolutely. So this is really in line with uh, w- with basically the deal for the loss and damage fund that was created at COP27 in Egypt. So basically, this means that smaller island nations and more vulnerable countries, they're looking to recoup costs of climate change that is impacted and that is happening in those countries because of richer countries and because of uh, big institutions like this. So this fund is going to be holding a lot of financial institutions to account. So that could be a potential reason why HSBC has made this decision to just kind of get ahead of all of this, really. Sheena Rossiter in Edmonton, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You at The Globalist. Portugal has plenty more to offer visitors than sun, sea and sand. With its vibrant cities, rolling vineyards and incredible history of design and a resourcefulness that always amazes. It's a fun place to eat. I mean, like, you just don't stop. It's sunny and it's warm and everything's outside. Like, it's great. Portugal, the Monocle Handbook is the first in a brand new series revealing our favorite places to eat, stay and shop from Lisbon to the Azores. Should you wish to stay a little longer, it will also help you find a neighborhood that could become your new base and introduce you to the people who have already put down roots. Head to monocle.com to find out more and prepare to see this fascinating nation afresh. People in Japan have chosen the kanji character for war as the symbol that sums up 2022. It's not surprising, perhaps, with the last 12 months not only seeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also the assassination of the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Well, Fiona Wilson is Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. A very good afternoon. Good morning, Fiona. Hi, thanks, Emma. So just before we, you know, we go into what's happened this year, just explain to us what exactly is the kanji of the year vote? Yeah, so this is this is big news in Japan. So, you know, Japanese language is written out in character. This is kanji. And there's a society in Kyoto, uh, Japanese kanji proficiency uh, society, and they promote the use of kanji, you know, make sure that people are, are still using it. All school children have to learn kanji. It's, it's a, a lifetime's work. And every year they have a vote. What is the kanji, this character, single character that sums up the previous year? Last year we had gold. Obviously, we had the Olympics a year late. Um, and this year, yeah, they've chosen uh, the character Sen, which can it, it it appears in various words to do with battles, 
um, and and conflict. And um, it's yeah, I think, as you say, it certainly <laughs> reflects what's gone on this year um, with Ukraine, particularly. Exactly. And you have had also the, the assassination of Shenzhou Abe, which is which is something that must have taken the whole country by surprise and knocked it sideways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the interesting thing about kanji is, you know, they, they are combined with other kanji. So you can have different meanings with, with one kanji. And that's certainly true with this one. So, yes, we've got, you know, we've had the, the, the struggle with Ukraine, Shinzo Abe, but it's also applied to the struggle with inflation, with high prices. And in a, in a slightly more positive way, you know, Japan's competition, they felt like the World Cup was quite good for Japan, uh, you know, that they, they beat Germany, they beat Spain. So that kind of contest you will also see the same character. So in the end, about a quarter of a million people voted for this character. So very popular, hot character. And um, they had different reasons. But I think, you know, most people were talking about Ukraine. And certainly the the, the chief priest, uh, Sehan Mori of, of Kiyomizudera Temple in Kyoto, he's the man who has to write this character in a huge paintbrush on Japanese paper. He does it, you know, it's a sort of live performance and he writes out, reveals the character. And he said, you know, what we're hoping for is that war, the war in Ukraine ends and that people can live in peace next year. So I think that's a good uh, message. I mean, you must ask yourself, you know, when the word comes out and everyone's expecting it to be in a bright and peaceful or, or gold as was last year. And then suddenly war comes out. Does everyone suddenly get massively down in the dumps? <laughs> Well, if you looked at the list, there was some some pretty difficult words in there. I mean, you know, sadness was in there, which I thought, oh, really, we can't have that as the kanji of the year. And I think, as I was saying, you know, the interesting thing about the character for war, Sen, is that it, it can be different kinds of battles. Um, you know, it can be metaphorical battles. It can be sporting contests. Um, so it, it, it's, it's not that it's a particularly sort of positive connotation in terms of Ukraine. Well, as I was saying, you know, kanji are used in, in, in all sorts of different ways. And there's a sense that the, the word for, for sen, for war, can also mean like a sporting battle. It can be a metaphorical battle against inflation, high prices. It can be the general sense that, you know, Japanese um, spirit, fighting spirit. So I think the feeling is that it's it's not a completely negative uh, word, certainly better than sadness. You know, you looked at the other words in the list, it could have been the next one, which was quite close, was N, which used in the sense of, you know, the falling yen, cheapness. It, it was inexpensive. That was a slightly different kind of sense. So I think, you 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 know, it's a, just an interesting use of the characters. And that is the whole purpose. It's to show Japanese people how rich their language is and how it's really worth using these characters. So, I mean, in the past, we have had much more lighthearted words come through, haven't we? Well, yeah, we had, you know, so we had, you know, gold was last year. But I have to say, we've had Sen before. Um, you know, this this uh, has been going for since 1995. This particular association has been running this annual kanji uh, contest. And in 2001, after September the 11th, the same character won. So it's interesting, isn't it? You know, that it, it, the same character can pop up again. Um, but no, they're not, you know, it's not all bad. And they do often relate to current events, you know, and that that is the purpose. And I think, you know, it makes it interesting and it keeps the language alive. So people had certainly had different reasons for picking this particular kanji. But I think in the end, you know, it, it does convey a certain sense of how tough this year has been in all sorts of different ways. Fiona Wilson, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Tokyo.
And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests. To our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Laura Kramer, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. After the headlines, more music is on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.